as with any rational argument, everything that we have seen in chapter 1 beginning about verse well beginning at verse 10 all the way through the opening verses of chapter 2 that we saw the last two Lord's days all of it is leading somewhere when you're following a rational argument as I said there's a point a lot of times the main point is not until the end but there's a point all of this is leading to where Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wanted to take the Corinthians or we could, we could say even skipping the middleman, all of this is leading to where God the Holy Spirit needed to bring the Corinthians so that they could be taught, so that they could learn the lesson. Now what we saw for the last two Lord's Days in chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 is sort of a springboard into the next section or the next step in Paul's argument as he continues to deal with division in the church and the subject of the division, which was preaching and preachers. That's his, his subject, the division over their favorite preachers. Remember that we said, I think it was last week, that the Corinthians had brought worldly wisdom into the church. Their, their society had taught them that the way up was to be achieved or, or striven after at all costs, even if that means, and especially if that means, on the backs of your fellow man. Whatever you have to do to clamor to the top. Get higher, no matter the cost, even at the expense of other people. Well, the Corinthians had brought a little, a little flavor of that thinking into the church, except they had, a, a, had put a Christian spin on it. And they were using the men who had preached to them, and, and we have their names, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and then some even, even claimed Christ exclusively. They were using that as the means by which they would vaunt themselves over their blood-bought brothers and sisters in the church. Christ sheep. That's what was happening. Now, I just want you to think about the mindset that has to be or that is probably at work in a person who does this, who says, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Well, I follow Cephas. Well, I follow Christ. What, what has to be happening in their mind to, to think that way, to speak that way, and then allow that thinking to cause division in the church? There, there had to be at least a little bit of, a, of that desire we just talked about, a desire to have the preeminence over their brothers and sisters. Like Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first. I just There's some, some impulse in them that says, I need to be at the top, at the head, over my brothers and sisters. This, this type of person cannot endure the thought of not being at the top, whether it be intellectually or spiritually. They can't imagine living their life not revered by other people. They want the preeminence. There would have to be at least a little interest. Sorry. There would have to be in their mind little interest in the preferences of the other sheep in Christ's flock. Because remember, we're talking about preferential things. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. They didn't teach a different gospel. And it had to be over preferences, but, but to, to adopt this mindset and then allow it to divide, they would have to be thinking, 
I have my preferences. I don't care what your preferences are. I'm not interested because I follow Paul. I follow Paulos, etc. There would have to be at least a little sense of superiority in their minds in that they judge between God's chosen and sent preachers. God had sent Paul to them. God had sent Apollos to them. God had sent Cephas to them. There has to be some, something happening in their mind where they think, you know what? Trust me. I'll judge the preachers. I, I know what's, what, what is, what is uh, the best. Just listen to me. Take my opinion for it. My tastes are superior to yours. I'll tell you what is good. You know, like you watch, I've, I've watched people try to explain how to make good coffee. And I follow all the steps. I drink it. it tastes like coffee. They would tell me, well, you just don't have the superior taste. You're just not able to tell what, what is good and what is bad. And, and that, that's probably true. But that that's, would have to be in this person's mind. I know what is good. Paul's preaching is good. Well, no, I know what is good. Paulos was good. And they would divide up. There would have to be in them some compulsion to make their personal preferences known. Now, we live in social media world where that is, that's literally what keeps it going. Is it's, not, it's not status update. Usually it's preference update. Like, I just need to... I just feel the compulsion to just let everybody let everybody know how what I'm thinking, what I'm what I'm liking right now, what what I'm interested in, what what am I, what is my preference in this or that thing? And if you're on Twitter, it's it's disgusting. I mean, that's that's all it is. And you can follow sort of a a schedule or a scheme. If if Monday a particular topic is thrown out amongst Christians, well, you can expect that at least through Wednesday or Thursday, all you're going to see is everybody addressing that thing. It just goes. Why? Well, they just feel the need to make their preferences known. I, I just, I got to let you know how I feel about this. I got to get it out. I can't keep it quiet. I just got to, I got to type it. I got to get, I got to let the world know. My, my, I got to let my 12 followers know what I think about this topic. And they're, they're probably, you know, thinking, what are you talking about? Or we don't care what you think. But there's this compulsion to make preferences Known preferences can't be held in silence. They must be published. They have to be thinking, my view must be heard. It must be known. I can't keep it quiet. There'd have to be a desire to make their opinion the opinion of others or remain in opposition. In other words, the, the attitude is, you need to see it my way. There, there's, no, there's no room. This town ain't big enough for disagreement, and camaraderie. town's not big enough. We can agree and have fellowship. We can disagree, not have fellowship. We can't have both. You need to see it my way or we will remain in opposition to one another. There would have to be a little bit of tenacity to hold on to this mindset even when they knew that it was causing strife. We read in the text, Paul said that he had heard from Chloe's people that there was quarreling among you, my brothers. The, the word, remember, means bitter conflict, heated, often violent dissension or contention. That's what was happening in the church. These people had to have decided, my way is more valuable 
than unity. They, they had to come to that conclusion. Bitter, if, if bitter conflict and contention is what it costs for me to hold my preferences, so be it. I'm holding them. That's, that has to be in their mind at least a little bit. Now, in contrast to all of that, Christ gives one commandment. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Everything the Corinthians were exhibiting was the op opposite of Christian love. It's not just by random that we get to chapter 13 and he goes into talking about love. This was the issue. They didn't love one another. Christian love is the kind of love displayed perfectly in Christ's love for us. As he says, just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. What is Christian love? Christian love is self-abasing love. Self-sacrificing love. Others-oriented love. Others-exalting love. Others-serving love. That's Christian love. But the Corinthian mindset... While, while tainted with all the world around them, was just this. It was simply a lack of love. They just didn't love one another. They had not learned to love one another. They had heard great preaching. They had been enriched with many gifts. We saw that in the opening of the letter. They've been enriched with many gifts. We'll see it again in chapter 12. They had all kinds of gifts. They had in many ways abandoned the outright paganism of their society. Should we even eat the meat sold in the market? I don't, think, I don't even think we should eat it. Let's just not even eat it. They had gone that far. We, we should, I mean, we should probably divorce our unbelieving spouses, right? We need to come out and be separate. They had done that. They, they had gone to these extremes, but they had not learned to love one another. And like many saints, they didn't realize that loving one another was really the most important of all of the traits of Christianity. Not being able to discern good preaching from better preaching. Not the exercise of great gifts. Not showing how far out you can go and be separate from the world. No, the defining trait of the Christian is love for the brethren. As Jesus goes on to say, by this... All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There are, there are many cults uh, that may claim to be Christian or maybe they're not Christian that, are, that, that have gone to far greater lengths to separate themselves from the, the general culture that they live in than we have. They're going to hell. They're separate, but they're lost. So that, that's not the trait. What is the trait? That you love one another. And the Corinthians had gotten to the point where they were thinking very highly of themselves. Like most of us, the more highly we think of ourselves, the less we think of others. High views of self cannot coincide with love. Can't. They were impatient with one another and therefore they acted unkind. They would act out of envy and boast about their actions. They were arrogant and rude toward one another. They insisted on their own ways and were irritable or resentful when they didn't get their way. 
If their opponents were shown to be wrong, they would rejoice only that they were shown to be wrong, not for any love for or care for the truth, but that that person was proved wrong. They were not willing to bear with weaknesses in one another. They were not willing to believe the best about one another. They were not willing to hope the best about one another. They were not willing to endure whatever needed to be endured for the sake of their brothers and sisters. Now, how do I know all that? Because the opposite of that is what Paul says love is in chapter 13. They were not doing love. They weren't loving one another. They were, by many accounts, an unloving church. And because they did not love one another, something as silly as preaching and preachers had divided them. Now, when you read 1 and 2 Corinthians together, you see that the Corinthians thought highly of themselves, and the higher that their self-assessment went up, the, the, the lower their value of Paul in particular went. They, by the, in 2 Corinthians, he's having to defend his own ministry very, very hard or, or harshly uh, in a sense. The more they thought of themselves, the more poorly they thought of Paul. Or, or they thought highly of themselves and poorly of Paul. Think about the factions. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Well, only one of those is Paul. If this problem in the Corinthian church is pervasive, then only 25% of the church was interested in Paul's preaching. 75% of the church was, were saying, you know what, take him or leave him. I don't really care for him. I actually prefer something over here. Their views of him had gone down. If they had their druthers, y'all know what druthers are? If you, got, if, you, if you get your druthers, this is the way we would say, I would rather. If they got their druthers, their rathers, they'd say, I don't need Paul. I don't care for him. If they had their druthers, they would say that they could more or less do without the apostle who had brought the gospel to them. And so as, as you read through these two epistles, you see Paul very hesitantly and yet wisely defending his own ministry among them while not really defending himself. And when he does have to defend himself, he says things like, I'm speaking like a madman. You, you've, you've pushed me to this. I didn't want to go this far. But that's what he's doing very wisely, hesitantly. Very often he brings the, the hardest thing last. Not like with the Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians. Not like that. He, he, he walks through a long argument and he finally gets to what is probably going to be the most painful thing to say. He does that often in, in these epistles. And one of the ways he does this is, as we saw last week, by pointing to his unconventional ministry. He did have a ministry among them. It just wasn't a culturally approved ministry. It wasn't something that would have been popular in their society. We saw that in verse 4 when he says, "...in my speech and my, my message..." were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Holy Spirit and of power. Paul validated here, not himself per se, not himself as himself, but himself or, or his ministry, with one phrase, in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That's all he had to say. And that was enough to prove or to validate his ministry. Now, Paul's mention of the Holy Spirit here is important because, as I said, what, what he did there is sort of set up a springboard that's going to launch him into the next little section of, of his argument. Eleven times in the section that spans chapter 2, verse 6, through chapter 3, verse 4 that we read, eleven times 
Paul mentions the Holy Spirit of God or something being spiritual, meaning under the influence and guidance of the Holy Spirit of God. Eleven times. And he doesn't start until verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So really, between verses 10 and chapter 3, verse 4, 11 verses, 11 times he mentions the Holy Spirit and what it means to be spiritual. That's that's going to be important and we'll probably pick that up as we move forward. Paul is, in a very subtle way, defending his ministry, very subtly, and also rebuking the arrogance of the Corinthians. Now you probably thought, well, I read all that. I didn't hear much rebuke at all. I didn't, I didn't pick up on that. And that's because it is very subtle, but I, I think you can see it. And as you read through the epistle, you find out they thought themselves to be mature. They thought themselves to be spiritual. It seems like, I'm just guessing here, it seems like they were sort of... Uh, inquiring diligently to get Apollos to come back. And what do we know about Apollos? He was a very eloquent preacher, bold, and, and all, all of those things we saw last week and we see in the book of Acts. That's why at the end of, the, of this first epistle, he says, now consider, concerning our brother Apollos, his, his will is not yet to come to you, but he, he will at some point if it's, if it's an opportunity. In other words, they're asking, where's Apollos? Bring Apollos back. We want Apollos. It, it, Almost like there's, there's this inclination, we need, we're ready for more. Give us, give us the deep stuff. Give us the, the, the lofty preaching that we heard when Apollos was here. And Paul has to write to him and say, you're not really ready for much more of that. That's what he's doing here. They thought themselves to be mature spiritual people. What he's saying here is, you're not mature spiritual people. You're not ready for that. It's the work of the Spirit of God which makes men spiritual. And it's the ongoing work of the Spirit of God that makes men spiritually mature. There there can be a work of the Spirit that you say somebody's been born again. That happened here. You're spiritual in that sense. But then there's a growth in spirituality where someone might be labeled a, a, a spiritual person or spiritually mature. And so it's the work of the Spirit of God to which Paul appealed to vindicate his own ministry among them regardless of how they thought about him now. They didn't, their, their, their view of him was going down, 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 down. And what he's saying is, well, my ministry was in a demonstration of the Holy Spirit and of power. And later on he's going to say, and I don't need to be approved of you because the Spirit has worked. That's what he's doing here. So I want us to think about that phrase, in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That, that word demonstration means literally to point out or to show forth. We said this last week. It means a showing or a proof or an exhibition. You might have some sort of a, a, a test of a new automobile and somebody puts it through these rigorous tests. It's, you're exhibiting what it can do, showing its power, its, its pulling strength, etc. That's, that's kind of the picture here. He's referring to an exhibition or a display of the work of the Holy Spirit and the power which accompanies such a work. And remember, we've, saw, we've seen before in chapter 1, the idea behind power is, is effectual change. Not electricity, but effectual change produced in a person. The work of the Holy Spirit and the power accompanying it. And remember the context, chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. 
Verse 4, my speech and my message. He's, he's proclaiming. He has, he's using speech. There's a, a message involved. What's the context? What's he talking about? Preaching. When he came and preached. Paul's saying, the effect of my preaching was not merely the fruit of human wisdom and rhetorical skill. Rather, the effect was nothing less than an act of the Spirit of God. That's what he's saying. In demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now, so far we've seen several truths. We've seen that the truth is central in God's economy of redemption. The truth. We've seen that the church is central or is the means by which God has ordained for the truth to go forth. We've seen that the preaching and teaching function is central to the ministry of the church. And then last week we saw that the vessels that God has chosen to carry out this task are sinful men in every situation. Even the Apostle Paul was a sinful man. Here we learn that the validation of preaching as a means of grace is the work of the Holy Spirit among those who hear. Now we might say, I, I see the truth is important. I see the church is important. I see preaching and teaching is important. I see the vessels are sinful men. It's really hard for me to believe that that can actually be God's means of grace. Pretty much unanimously understood historically to be the chief means of grace is the proclamation, the preaching of the word. I don't know if I can get on with that. I mean, sinful men. What we're seeing here is the proof of that is the work of the Spirit as it happens. God puts His seal on this means of grace by the effectual ministry of His Spirit. Assuming an application for the regular normative ministry of the Word in the church, God puts His seal of approval on that means of grace by attending it with the powerful working of His Spirit. And I say that, I mentioned that regular normative ministry in the church because the Apostle Paul was not the regular normal minister in a church. When, when the, and the time that he's describing here, when I came to you, brothers, well, that wasn't just... That was different than what we experience here week in and week out, the regular normative ministry. And somebody could say, well, that was the apostle. Obviously, when the apostles preached, the Spirit would work. But now, we just have regular men. What, what should we really expect to be happening? But the same is true for the, the ongoing work in the church. What was true of Paul's ministry, in principle is true of the ministry of every preacher. It's vindicated and validated when the Spirit of God is pleased to accompany it and own it as a means of effectual grace in the hearers. Since we do live in a time where there's a lot of confusion about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in general amongst professing Christians, especially with regard to the manifestation of the Spirit in preaching, I want to spend a little time Considering this subject under this title, it's kind of a long title. Pursuing, identifying, and appropriating the demonstration of the Spirit and of power in preaching. Pursuing, identifying, and appropriating the demonstration of the Holy Spirit and of power in preaching. Now you might say, what, is, what does that have to do with all that talk about love in the church at the beginning? Well, I, I'm going to try to show that. But for right now, 
pursuing, identifying, and appropriating the demonstration of the Spirit and of power in preaching. When, when we hear that in the regular normative ministry of the local church, God puts His seal of approval on the means of grace that we call preaching by attending it with His the work of His Spirit, some thoughts should come into our minds. For example, that sounds good. I want that. That, that should come into our minds. When we hear this, I want that. But we also might have thoughts like, but how would we know if that's happening? How do we know? Is there any way to, to quantify it? Is it something we see? Is it something we feel? How would we know? Another thought that might come into, your, into our minds is, is there anything that we can do to make that happen? That's the kind of stuff I want to try to address. Pursuing, identifying, and appropriating the demonstration of the Spirit and of power in preaching. Now, I realize that I'm not preaching to a room full of preachers. So I want, I've tried to tailor this in such a way that it suits all of us as we are all hearers of preaching. This is, this is about us, all of us together, as those who listen to preaching. What can we all learn as those who listen to preaching? So number one, pursuing the demonstration of the Spirit and of power in preaching. I should qualify this by saying this is not exhaustive. So there's your qualification. Number one, pursuing the demonstration of the Spirit and of power in preaching. What, if anything, can we do to pursue this kind of work of the Spirit? Is there any obligation laid at our feet at all as those who hear preaching? Is there any obligation or responsibility laid at our feet? if we want to see or experience a demonstration of the Spirit and of power? I would say, yes. There are some things that we can do pursuant to this kind of a ministry of the Holy Spirit, but with a warning or with qualification. Here's the warning. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is God. God is sovereign, which means the Spirit of God is sovereign, which means... He does whatever He wants. Psalm 135 verses 5 and 6 say, For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, that He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. And that is true no less of the Spirit of God than it is of the Father or of the Son because the three are one. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is great and is above all gods. Whatever the Spirit of the Lord pleases, the Spirit of the Lord does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all deeps. And so we, we need to understand that there is nothing that we can do that constrains God somehow to work in specific ways, in specific times, according to an equation. And this is very important for us to remember because false expectations about the work of the Spirit will go unmet. He's not going to meet your expectations because they're wrong. And unmet expectations about how the Spirit works are going to leave you disappointed. If you're expecting, let, let's go to the extreme. Let's go to Bethel Church, Redding, California. If you're expecting gold dust to come out of the, the ventilation, 
to, to validate a work of the Spirit, listen, you're going to be really, really disappointed uh, over, over the long term. You're just going to be disappointed. You're going to go home every week saying, no Spirit. I guess the Holy Spirit's not working. Now, that's an extreme. I, I, hopefully, the, we understand how extreme that is. But any expectation that we have that's false, it will go unmet, and that will lead you into disappointment, not only with the Holy Spirit, but with, but with the church, with preaching in general. So I don't want anybody to hear me saying, if you do these things, the Spirit of God will respond in this way always without fail. Here's the formula. Type it in, and you'll get your product. That, that's not what I'm saying. But I do think that there are some things that we can do. I do think that the church as a whole and individual saints, all of us, I do think that we should live in confident expectation with regard to the good, saving, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. I believe that. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. This is what God wants to do, sanctify you. Our great high priest prayed for our sanctification. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Our Lord promised to give His Spirit. In John 14, He says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. When the Helper comes, John 15, whom I will send from you, from the Father, or send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. We put all this together. God wants us to be sanctified. We're sanctified by the truth by the working of the Holy Spirit, Christ said, when I go, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to sanctify you through the truth. And our high priest even now makes intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, Christ even now still prays for our total and complete salvation. He is praying to ensure that we are saved to the uttermost completely. He wants us to be sanctified. He's given us his spirit and the truth in order to be sanctified. Christ prays for our sanctification through the truth. And also, God has given us commands, things to do with regard to the truth. Paul told Timothy, we could call Timothy a proto-pastor. Paul told Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's a command. The word is to be preeminent in the church. As for our hearing... The Lord Jesus says in Luke 8, 18, Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given. God wants to sanctify us. He uses the truth by the power of the Spirit. Christ is praying for that work to continue. And He said, give yourself to the Word in the ministry of the church. Give yourself to it, read it, preach it, proclaim it, and pay attention how you hear it, because more will be given to those who do so. So I believe that we should be confident that if we live in obedience to the commands of God in these matters, we should expect that God will do what God has promised to do through those means. Just not always in the same way. Again, there's not a mathematical formula or equation that we can punch in. There's no uniform pattern. It always looks like this. No, we can't have that. 
We live in confident expectation of the demonstration of the Spirit. Now, that being said, there are a few things that I think we can do to pursue that. The first of these has to do with preparing to hear the Word preached. And I've got four things here that we can do as we prepare to hear the Word preached. The first one is come to hear preaching in order to glorify God. Come to hear preaching in order to glorify God. Not, I'm not saying, well, you know, the first question of the catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God. I'm not saying affirm it. I'm not saying confess it. I'm saying do it. Come, having already previously settled it in your mind, this is what I'm here to do, to glorify God. Determine that you will strive to bring God glory as you listen to preaching. These are matters of our hearts and our minds. We've got to resolve in ourselves. It doesn't just happen. I can't pass out resolution stickers at the door that you slap on your forehead to get a demonstration of the Spirit of power as you listen. You have to do that. We all have to do that consciously. Now that sounds simple. I come to glorify God. But how often do we actually do it? How often do we not intentionally and sincerely have the glory of God in our minds? If I asked you, when you walk in the door, what are you thinking? Most of us would probably not say, just thinking about glorifying God. I'm not saying that you have to have that sincere answer. There's a lot of stuff that we have to do. There's, there's, there's work to be done here. But very often our minds are not angled in this way. How often do we arrive with no real intention beyond the external forms of religion? Let's be honest. How often do we show up and the only legitimate intention that we have is get in the door, sit down, there will be a time when we stand up and we leave. We'll hopefully get some food between those two events. But that's usually as far as we've thought is the external form. We might as well come and kill bulls and goats if that's how we worship. If that's all we're thinking about is getting through the form, that's what they did. How often do you approach the preaching of God's Word with your own glory in mind? We can come to exalt ourselves in preaching by sitting down and saying, all right, I'm going to decide whether or not this is good preaching or not. I'm, I'm going to sit as judge. That's glorying in ourselves. How often do we come and we think, you know, I want to show, I'm going to show everybody this week how well my family can sit still and quiet in the service. It's, it's, it's a glorying in yourself. We have the glory of man in our minds. Maybe you do come and you say, I cannot wait to sit and just be enthralled at the giftedness and the abilities of a man. That's wrong. How often do we come just to listen, to revel in your favorite preacher or just think about how you're glad he's not like so many other preachers? That's just a glorying in man. It's all wrong. We have to come to glorify God. You should come. You should arrive prepared to magnify the many glorious perfections of God in all that you do and how you listen and how you respond in your heart. Come having prepared. You say, I don't even know what that looks like. I'm driving down the road. I'm thinking about stop signs and turn signals and, and diapers. and It's work. 
It's hard work. Number two, come out of love to God. Come to preaching out of love to God, specifically God in Christ. Worshiping and listening to preaching is a sober thing. It's a serious thing. But we've not come to Mount Sinai. So we don't come to listen to preaching in in some type of servile fear. Well, I better listen or God will get me. I I sinned pretty bad this week. I'm going to make it up to Him with my listening, my preaching. We come, if you're a believer, if if you are united to Christ, we do come with reverence. God has not changed. We come with reverence. But we come as those who have been invited into the presence of our gracious, loving Father who brings us here to, in essence, sit us at His feet so that He can lavish His love upon us through the means of grace that is preaching. Our Father is loving us. Our our Christ, our, our Messiah, our Shepherd is loving us through preaching. And knowing that, you ought to come out of love to Him to receive. Stir up your mind and your heart with this reminder. My Father has brought me here so that He can make me more like His Son. That's why you're here. Sometimes you might feel like you're getting fussed at. And I know my demeanor sometimes looks like I'm fussing at you. That's, I, I pray so often that I could, that I could exude what we just sang. No, no harshness, no tenderness. Our Father loves us. Our Shepherd loves us through preaching. So come out of love to Him. Number three, come in faith. Come to preaching in faith. That is... Come to preaching with a disposition that is conditioned by what the Word of God says about preaching and about the work of the Spirit. Some of that we've already seen. God wants to sanctify us. We know that. We know that He uses the truth. We know that He's commanded the Word to be preached. We know that He's told us how to hear. Couple all of that in our minds with prayer, seeking the power of the Spirit to see God do what He said He will do. Couple God's promises about preaching with prayers that claim those promises. For example, God, you said that your word is a light and a lamp. Give me light. Show me where to go. Guide me. That's listening in faith. I, you, 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 more than likely, I'm not going to bring a sermon that's detailed to the specific need of an individual in the congregation. You've got things going on that only you and God know. God can use something I prepared completely separate to give light and guidance to you. So come in faith. Come expecting that's going to happen. And stir up your faith by reminders of previous works of God through the same means. We we need to stir ourselves up in faith. Ask yourself, has God ever blessed anyone through the preaching of the Word? Yeah, He has. Has God ever blessed you through the preaching of the word? Probably so. Then stir up your faith by reminding yourself that God has not changed. His promises remain the same. His word remains the same. The means has not changed. He's done it before. He can do it again. He wants to do it again. How hopeful ought we to be that when we come to listen to the word preached, we ought to be hopeful, expecting. We come in love and in faith. Expecting God to stir up more love and faith. John Owen says this, listen. 
to make a pretense, and he's, he's talking here about all of the means of grace and, and specifically preaching, or he gets specifically to preaching, but he says, to make a pretense of coming unto God and not with expectation of receiving good and great things from Him. So you come to preaching, but you didn't come expecting good and great things. He says to do that is to despise God Himself, to overthrow the nature of the duty and deprive our own souls of all benefit thereby. Now how many of us would have to say, when I came here this morning... I wasn't, I, I wasn't consciously expecting God to do anything great. Owen says, you, you despised God. Do you know this God? I mean, when He speaks, worlds come into existence. You think you're going to come into His presence and He's not going to do good things? You're despising Him. You're acting like He is no God. Come in faith and, and fourthly, come to offer true worship. Our confession summarizes worship by saying that God is to be Feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. That's a summary of what we could include in what is worship. And so go to bed on Saturday night and get ready on Sunday morning and, and get ready to listen to preaching and do so consciously, purposefully, intentionally planning to fear God, love God, praise God, call upon God, trust in God, and serve God with all your heart soul, mind, and strength. Come to worship to give Him that. Every sermon could be different. Every service could be different. Maybe, maybe the whole day is just spent fearing God. Maybe the whole day is spent loving God. It's not going to be all of those things necessarily every time. But we must come to offer a service. There are a lot of people, I've met them, who hate calling what we're doing right here a worship service. Well, it's, it, they want it to be something like a celebration or whatever. No, we have come to serve, to offer worship. And the way that you do that in the worship service is, or one of the ways is through listening to preaching. So come thinking, I want to worship God as I listen to preaching. Now, that's all in preparation. As the word is being preached, so now we're here. So maybe you, you, didn't, you didn't do those steps before you start, before we started. It's okay, you didn't know them. So now here we are, you're we're, we're in preaching. What do you do? Same thing. Just do the same things. Listen to glorify God. Listen for God to be glorified. And even in your own soul, there is a biblical mandate for the public amen. You can verbally affirm, but even also in your own soul, affirm as God is glorified. There's nothing that... A few things that might stir your soul up more than just in your own soul. As you hear the God you worship being glorified, talk to yourself as the psalmist and say, Soul, that's Him. That's the one that you love. And He loves you. He's talking about your God. Listen for Him to be glorified. Just even in your own self. If, if we're not a... a, a quite responsive as other churches, even in your own self. Just think to yourself, isn't He wonderful? Isn't this God wonderful? But because we're so entertainment driven, we don't, if we're honest, we rarely even think about God in preaching. We just think about observing the thing, watching the, the sermon. Glorify God and listen for Him to be glorified. And when He is glorified, confirm it. Listen out of love to God. 
listen to preaching like you would listen to the words of somebody that you know loves you very much. Listen to preaching as you would listen to somebody who you know has your very best interest in mind, who knows every need you have and has the cure to give if you will listen. Listen, listen in, in that sense. You say, you, you, you think awful highly of yourself. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about God through preaching. Listen out of love to God and listen for the love of God to be manifest. Preaching as all means of grace are just ways that God conveys and communicates His love to His people. So when you hear hard things in a sermon, your first thought should be, man, these are the faithful wounds of the most faithful friend I've ever had. You say, well, you think a lot of yourself there, don't you? I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about God. When you hear comforting things, you can say, Father, thank you for reminding me of your love again. When you're taught things, you can say, Father, thank you for patiently bringing me to the truth. Why did I not see that before? Thank you for being patient with me. Listen out of love. Listen for the love of God to be manifest. God is loving you and you can love Him as you listen to the Word preached. And listen with faith, conditioned by what the Word of God says about preaching and the work of the Spirit. And ultimately, faith looks beyond what can be seen to what cannot be seen. So, faithful listening to preaching means looking beyond the man preaching and to God. Listening and, and allowing the entire framework of, in which we hear to be conditioned by what the Bible teaches. God has commanded this means of grace. He's commanded it. God sent this man to me and me to this man. It is not an accident that we all ended up here. Y'all sat there staring at me and I'm now turned looking at you. It's not an accident. Providence from the foundation of the world has brought you to every single instance of preaching. And God has spoken through His Word. It's a divine appointment. So you come in faith, looking past the instrument to the God who has appointed it. As soon as you begin to be hung up on a man or a strange mannerism or a, a misplaced or mispronounced word or any of the failures of men, you're in danger of being taken off of faithful listening and to a carnal observance of a ritual. Now, this, is, this, this puts a responsibility on preachers. This is why preachers think about and write down what they're going to say. And they, think, they try to do it well because they don't want to draw people away from God to themselves don't get hung up on the men. God has appointed men. Men are sinners and are sinful. We've covered that. That was last week. We covered that. Men are sinful. We don't listen to preaching to observe a man. We come to hear from God on God's authority. Period. I tremble at the old confessional statement. The preached word of God is the word of God. That scares me to death. That is fearful. That's hard to say out loud. That's, 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 a, that's been acknowledged historically. This is the means God has used. Infallible? No. Inerrant? No. Under the inspiration, through, working through man as with the apostles? No. But still, the means of God conveying His Word. This is how God speaks to His people. Owen says that where our listening is resolved into divine authority, there and there alone... Will preaching have a divine efficacy? He, again, he's talking about all the means of grace. I'm applying it to preaching. 
where our listening is resolved into divine authority. God, you commanded it. God, you sent it. God, you brought me here. God, this is your word. I'm going to listen. Where you're resolved in that way, he says, there and there alone will it have divine efficacy. So while we remain absolutely surrendered to the sovereign will of the Spirit of God, it does seem in accordance with God's own revealed will that we can and should pursue the work of the Spirit as we listen to preaching. Number two, I think the other points are shorter. I really don't know. Number two, identifying the demonstration of the Spirit of, and of power in preaching. Seeing that we can and should pursue such a work of the Spirit, how would we know if it's happened? How would we know? With all of the confusion surrounding the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, how do we know if what has happened is really a work of the Spirit? The charismatics would say, you'll feel it. You'll feel it. As far as I'll go, you'll feel it. You'll know. Or you'll be stirred up with emotional jargon or perhaps music or, or you might stand up and start speaking in tongues or you might fall down on the floor and start laughing or, or barking. That's how you'll know the Spirit has arrived. You might be caught up in an ecstatic vision. So when, when you're looking at the preacher and what? Sure enough, behind him on the wall, there's an angel. I think I see an angel. That's the kind of stuff. They, that's how you know the Spirit has arrived. That's how they show. Some of you are looking at the wall. <laughs> you're not going to see it. Those are negatives. The revivalists would say many of the same things, but they'll say, well, you'll know when the Spirit has arrived, when people come down to the altar at the end of the service and there's crying and there's hugging and the meetings are extended. It was scheduled for Wednesday, but you know what? We're going to go to Friday. That's how you know the Spirit has, has come in power. Or many would say that there will be widespread changes in the church and in the community and in the nation. Now, some of that does take place in true moves of the Spirit, in true revivals. But I believe if we limit the work of the Spirit to even those good things, it's going to set us up again for disappointment. If, if, if we are expecting what happened in the Great Awakening to happen every Sunday, if we think that is normative, we're going to go home disappointed. Revivals aren't normal. That's the whole point of them is that they're not normative. What we're thinking about is the regular normative ministry of the Word in a local congregation. So what do we look for? How, do we, how would we identify a demonstration of the Spirit and of power? Well, we can answer that by asking two other questions. Number one, who is working when there's a demonstration of the Spirit and of power? The Holy Spirit of God. And what does He do? What does the Bible teach about the kind of work that the Spirit does in the people of God? And the answer of that is as broad as, as we want to go. We could go for, for years just in answering the question, what does the Spirit of God do amongst the people of God? The Spirit of God gives life. He regenerates people. This had happened in Corinth. It's happened here. He, he, he brings people from death to life. But that's not all that He does. The Spirit produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Faith, virtue, knowledge, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. He strengthens with power in our inner being. He gives to us to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He fills us with all the fullness of God. He helps us to put to death the deeds of the body. He changes us into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. Everything that God does, the Spirit does or is doing. Every grace for our hearts, every nourishment of our souls, every necessary attainment in our minds 
comes to us by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's huge. But what does it look like? Preaching is a means of grace. The Spirit is the one who gives the grace from Christ's fullness. So we should expect, where there is a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, we should expect that the Spirit is going to do the things the Spirit does. And He does it through the preaching of the Word. When the Spirit does what only the Spirit can do, that's a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. He'll save some. He'll call them out of darkness into, his mar- into God's marvelous light. He might increase your love for God or for others as the Word is preached. He might give you joy as the Word is preached. He might put your soul at rest as the Word is preached. He might help you to increase and grow in patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness. He, he might give you knowledge, a deeper understanding of who He is. Or He might just give you a knowledge of some facts about the Scripture that you didn't know, but all of a sudden they click into place with others and there's a greater understanding of God's revelation. He'll convict you of sin and give you the strength to mortify it. We could go on and on. I'll quote Owen again. Owen describes it this way. He says, These, these benefits are great. As, for instance, when men find the worth and effect of the word preached on their souls in its enlightening, refreshing, strengthening, transforming power. When they find their hearts warmed, their graces exercised and strengthened, the love of God improved, their desponding spirits under trials and temptations relieved, their whole souls gradually more and more conformed unto Christ, When they find themselves by it extricated out of snares, doubts, fears, temptations, and brought into sanctification and rest. This is just him kind of going on about the kinds of things that happen as the word is preached. The exercise of of, of various graces. For some people, the greatest exercise in patience that you go through all week is just sitting here and listening. You're you're learning patience. You're learning steadfastness. You're learning to bear with your brothers and sisters. You're growing. These are the kind of things the Spirit does, and we can attribute them to the Holy Spirit. And when that's happening, the Spirit of God is exhibiting His power through the preaching of the Word. Now, we keep in mind a few caveats. The work of the Spirit is not going to be the same for every person in the congregation at every service. One person might swell up with joy, while the other one is broken down with conviction. Some people come properly prepared. Some people come not prepared at all. If you don't come prepared, if you scurry in here at the last minute every single week, unprepared to sit, you're you're not going to benefit and grow from the preaching. And you're going to say, there's something wrong with this preacher. Spirit's not moving. You're not prepared. While others others leave and it's almost like they got a glow around them. And you're thinking, this guy's a nut. No, he just prepared. He prepared. He got ready. Sometimes that could be the case. Different texts and sermons and seasons are going to lead to different works of the Spirit. Not, it, it won't all happen to the same extent throughout the whole sermon. There might be some times where you have to just tighten down your thinking helmet and just think for a while, and, and you're thinking, this, this is nothing more than just intellectual tracking through the wilderness to get to a point. You might not feel like the Holy Spirit is really doing anything in that moment. But when you get to the point that's being made, then the Spirit gives some sort of grace. It could happen like that. 
And the work won't happen persistently in every sermon for every person in the same way all the time. Sometimes, believe it or not, the preacher comes unprepared. Not He, he might have all of this, you know, big deal. He didn't come prepared. And so we miss out on the grace of the Spirit. Sometimes the congregation is unprepared. Or sometimes there are seasons of great work. There are stories of this. Men have told seasons of great work. And then all of a sudden, they could, they could tell you the date on that Sunday. It was over. It never happened again. It was a season of some, some great work, but it, then it, all of a sudden it ceases. Again, we're not sovereign over the Spirit. More often than not, the demonstration of the Spirit and of power in the regular and normative ministry of the Word in a regular church is going to be like an illustration I use many times. It's going to be like BBs, not cannonballs. It's not going to be I come in one service and... Boom, a cannonball just blasts my whole life into pieces. More than likely, it's going to be like BBs. Tink, 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 tink. Over years and years and years. And after a decade, you say, I think I can see a mark there. Something's happening. It, that's usually how it is. But this is the work of the Spirit nonetheless. Number three, appropriating the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. How can we make use of it? If the Spirit does come and does work, how can we, can we make it useful for ourselves? Now, some people might say, well, if the Spirit has worked and He's sovereign, then there's nothing you can do about it. You just sort of sit back and take it and go home you know, walking two inches above the ground. As with all areas where we must reckon with God's sovereignty and our responsibility, we must understand that God's sovereign dispensations also include our obedience to duty. We have something to do with what we've heard. Remember the parable of the soils. Do you think that you can come in here? Name the preacher. Charles Spurgeon comes in here, preaches a sermon. And then as soon as it's over, you take your mind straight back to the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. You think that word's going to find much place in your heart? No. Now You might have felt pretty warm and gushy while it was coming out, but it was of no effect. So I think we do have some things that we can do to help appropriate it. To use this, I'll, I'll only use one text, which is, I, I think brings us back to where we began with Christian love and maturity. James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. James says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, so he heard it, he just didn't do it. He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, persevere unto doing, he will be blessed in his doing. So, to put it negatively, what, what can we do to guarantee that the work of the Spirit in preaching will not be appropriated? What, what could you do to make sure it is of no effect? Just listen. Just listen. Just come. Say, I'm going to listen. And that's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to do anything else. I'm just going to listen. James says, you, you, you hear it. It's going to be no good for you. Because you've got to persevere unto doing. Make no effort to do anything more than listen to the act of preaching and you can guarantee it will not be fruitful for you. Just come and listen without preparation, without purpose. And you can guarantee that whatever might have happened during the preaching will be lost and it might only serve to your condemnation. 
Well, God says in the judgment, you heard, a, you heard a decent sermon that one Sunday, and you didn't do anything. What should we do? Persevere, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. Go do those things of preparation. You hear the word, and then act upon what you've heard. And this is where the mysterious cooperation between ourselves and the Spirit of God takes place. And why we often refer to sanctification as synergistic. Because God does some things and then He also does some things in and with us so that we then cooperate with Him. There's work that we must do. How do we do it? Power of the Spirit. But we still have to do it. We must be doers who act upon what we've heard. Now, several ways we can do this. The first one, and most importantly, in preparation, during the preaching, after the preaching, is prayer. Pray. Pray over and through what you've heard. Especially dealing with those areas where you might have been convicted of a sin, or encouraged, or strengthened, or comforted, whatever it was. Pray through that. If you're a note taker, you can write down the specifics of what you believe God was doing. With you, for you, to you, in you, in preaching. Just make a note so that you can bring it to your mind later. And again, pray through it. Come back later and meditate about what was said. Read through the scriptures that were relevant. And what the Spirit was doing during the act of preaching. I know some people, uh, I've heard stories of people who, they're note takers. And they go home on the Lord's Day evening and they lay all their notes out on their bed. And they, they read through them and they pray through them. And, Lord, and they ask, Lord... Apply to me what I've heard. Meditate upon it. Then regurgitate it. Bring it back to mind later throughout the week. Most of us, when Monday comes, about Monday at 2 o'clock, if somebody said, what was the sermon about? You'd say, uh, hold on, give me a second. I know that we read more than usual from 1 Corinthians. And then he read from, I think it was James. Give me a second. Because we forget regurgitate, bring it back to mind as, as we, the, we would say of the cattle. Chew the cud, cough it back up and chew it a little bit more and suck some of that out of it. And how do we know if a ministry or the ministry of the word was a demonstration of the spirit of power? James says, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts will be blessed in all his doing. There will be doing. That's the effect. Doing. Not, not necessarily physical actions with the hands and feet. Oftentimes that will be. Not necessarily words verbally, but, but an acting of the soul, the body, the mind. A, a change. Real, practical, ongoing changes happening in the lives of the people who are listening. That's the work of the Spirit. Now for the Corinthians, they had been converted under Paul's ministry. The ones who were truly born again. Their lives had been transformed to some extent. They couldn't deny that Paul had a true ministry there because they had been changed. That's the evidence of the Spirit. It was a demonstration of the Spirit. God had worked. They were changed. And Paul points out multiple times the great difference between talk and appearances and the true power of God in the Spirit. He's going to conclude this argument in chapter 4 verse 20 by saying the kingdom of God does not consist in talk but in power. I'll come to those who are talking. And I'll show where the power is. In 2 Timothy 3, he warns Timothy of those who have the appearance of godliness, but deny, but deny its power. 
It's not talk. It's not appearances. It's not show that validates the work of the Spirit. Power validates. Change validates. Effectual, life-changing power from God. There are often those in the church, as I said earlier, who have high views of themselves and their spirituality. And I think that's who Paul addresses in chapter 14 when he says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or is spiritual, why would he say that? Because there are people in the church who said, I'm prophet, I'm spiritual, I'm mature. He says, if you want to, you want to prove it, then just to prove what I'm saying. The Corinthians thought that. They were spiritual. They were mature. But who are the true spiritual people? Who has really come under the and appropriated the demonstration of the Spirit and of power? It's those who do what the Word says. The effect of the Spirit's work is a people who are growing up to maturity. It's sanctification in the whole man, the mind, the heart, the life. And what does this maturity look like at a practical level in the church? Love for one another. That's maturity. The Corinthians thought highly of themselves and poorly of Paul. Paul's ministry was attested by the Holy Spirit. But the Corinthians had not properly appropriated the work of God among them. They had not gone on. In Paul's absence, they had begun to degenerate and to bring back in their worldly ways. Well, how do we know that? Because they weren't loving one another. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. Well, how do you know? For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Who, who are you to say we're not mature, we're not spiritual? Because you're acting like babies. You're acting like toddlers in a toy room. That's what he's saying. They weren't ready for meat, even though they probably thought themselves to be ready for it. And so while we ought to pursue the work of the Spirit, and while we should be able to identify the work of the Spirit, if we don't go on to appropriate the work of the Spirit, seeking to grow more and more into the image of Christ, which is going to be manifested most simply and clearly in genuine brotherly love, we have not really grown up. For all of our learning and all of our talking and all of our giftedness and for all of our separation from the world and all of our boldness in the squares and spheres of the public eye, God would say, you're a noisy gong. You're a clanging cymbal. You're nothing. You gain nothing. Why? Because we haven't really shown the world our Savior who said, as I have loved you, you love one another. That's how the world will know. Well, a lot of what we have heard this morning, if we could summarize it, it would be in, in phraseology that sounds like this. Do, 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 do. And there is a time and a place for that. The scriptures are full of commands and instructions for us. And there are times when in preaching we have to just lay out all of the duties of Christianity. But it would, it would be foolish of me to 
leave any of us expecting that we could do anything that, that has been impressed upon us apart from the power of the Spirit of God, which we've heard about, but especially without hearing again the gospel of Jesus Christ, which secures or has secured for us the power of that Spirit and, and the indwelling of that Spirit. And that's what we do at the Lord's table. We, we, we come to, to really the climax of what we have heard. Preaching is, is powerless, is useless, is ineffectual, is a waste of all of our time. What we're doing here is a waste of all of our time if Jesus Christ had not suffered and bled and died on the cross. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, speaking of Christ, says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now notice we are expected to die to sin and live to righteousness. That's a part of our duty. How do we do that? How can we do that? Because He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, enfleshed, lived a life wherein there was no sin, no deceit, no reviling, no threatening. A perfect and holy life. And then He suffered and died in the place of sinners. We have lived lives that are not sinless, that are full of sin. We, we are sinners by nature. Our very nature is corrupt. You, you woke up this morning in a state of, of fallenness. And yet Christ took our sins upon Him and took them to the cross and there bore the very wrath of God. He, he hung there as a substitute, punished in our place, so that we could be saved. So that anybody who comes to Him in faith and repentance will be saved. Anybody can be saved by this Christ. And because He's done that, because He washes us of our sin, because He has won for us the Holy Spirit and the work of regeneration. We can now hear sermons that sound like, do this, do this, do this, do this, in confidence. It's not a burden to us. We hear it with, with, with hope and with gladness. And so, at the Lord's table, we are reminded that He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Contemplate the cross. Bring your sins to Him. Thank Him for such a great salvation. Ask for grace. And then we'll come to the table together.